0: and I am Vice President of Business Development and I'm General Manager of the Nashville Office for Symphonic Distribution. Um, In in what we do, we are a distributor, but we also try to be a service provider of other levels of service to artists, including things like marketing, publishing administration, YouTube monetization, user-generated content monetization, a la TikTok, etc., Um, SYNC representation through our sister company, Bodega SYNC, which is based in in the heart of Brooklyn and uh, and has an incredible staff there. Um, And uh, it really just tried to serve to to plug holes for artists and and to assist artists and labels in really being able to monetize and grow revenues in every possible lane. And so um, my job here is pretty unique in that not only do I sign distribution clients, but I'm also working on the sync side of things because I bring you know, a wealth of sync experience to the table. So, so that kind of reports up through me. I'm working on the user-generated content side of things, um, trying to find new technologies to help you guys monetize your, you know, your music. Um, so one of the people that I love to talk to about this subject and about just music in the state of things today in general is uh, Mr. Jake Gilbert. And so please join me in welcoming him here today. Jay is, uh, is no stranger in the world of music. Uh, he is the co-founder and head of digital strategy for Label Logic, which is an incredible consultancy that I've had the pleasure of working with here and there tangentially. And, and I think we're going to be doing some more things down the road, knock on wood. But Jay uh, comes to us basically having set foot in many, many of, uh, of the majors that we all hold up on pedestals or some, some hold up on pedestals, um, you know, from Warner music group to Fox to universal um, he's kind of been there and done that on all fronts. He's worked with the likes of kiss with uh, Johnny cash, with Nirvana, with his favorite band, the acts of dentals who uh, I've grown to, to love over the last year or so. And he's actually quite a, quite an accomplished photographer um concert photographer uh, well ace fraley if you want to get into the kiss camp but yeah anyhow um so thank you all for being here so much and thank you jay for joining my pleasure us
1: and always a pleasure to get together and do a coffee talk with you and you know this time we have an audience
0: so the theme of today is is wide in general and and so we're going to hit a lot of topics and um, we'll have questions at the end for sure. Um, but you know, the, the the goal here is how how do we have a kickass year in 2021? God knows it's got to be better than 2020 was. Um, we have uh, you know we've learned a lot over the last year. Um, you know, there are some some assumptions that we all had uh, that are out the window, and there is new knowledge here to supplant that. And so for us, um, I think going through. Some, some big items that we think will help uh, everybody is, is gonna be a nice exercise. So for all of our, in, for our intents and purposes today, we're gonna break this into two buckets, business and marketing. Because they really are the two sides to the coin. They are the left brain and the right brain for every musician, every label. Um, and, and one without the other is a, a recipe for failure um, in either inversion. And so, um, so I would like to talk about starting out with the business side of things and, and, and go over some things that we think would be uh, beneficial to do here as we're launching into 2021. My favorite exercise in the world for labels and artists is called a revenue completeness check. Jay, I'm pretty sure you've done this with your clients in yeah. the past. Um, you know, do you want to just kind of start us down that road. Actually, hold on. Let me look. We don't all have our cameras on, so it's going to be really tough for me to tell. But as far as, are you an artist? Are you on the business side? Can we, artists, can we get a show of hands before we started on this? Okay. Oh, look, I got you guys to turn your cameras on. Hi, Allie. Mm -hmm. Um, Awesome. Okay, and the rest of you, I would assume are on the business side. So that works out solidly. So Jay, when I say revenue completeness check, What goes through your head? Well, I think of
1: it as um, one third of the audience that we look at, right? There's three audiences. Typically there's commerce, sales streams and downloads, basically, and there's merch and other things, but just looking at that, then, you know, there's the audience on socials and there's the audience of the people that see you live. And what we like to do is look at that commerce and really look at where it is today but more importantly, set goals. So let's say you're starting a release cycle, you're starting the year, whatever it is. I think it's really important to have goals across all those different verticals. Um, Sales streams and downloads are kind of the obvious ones, but there are so many other ways uh, to create revenue, um, whether it's, you know, with Merch, whether it's with uh, publishing, whether it's sync licensing and all sorts of other things. So I think it's really good to have those goals and then communicate those to your team. And if you're starting out, your team may be your wife, husband, girlfriend, whatever, bandmates. But I think it's crucial that you have a snapshot of where you are in all of those different areas and then have some goals set. Solid answer there, sir. So as we look at revenue, um,
0: we obviously have to break it up into buckets, because as we all know, we have the master side of what we do, and we have the publishing side of what we do. And though they commingle, um, the places where we run to to find the money in either and or both um, often are not the same. And so, you know, I think, you know, I'd like to start down the road of master revenue completeness, and, and just make sure that we check all the boxes. For that so so as Jay mentioned we've got your streaming revenues we've got you know the sync revenues and things like that, that are that are out front but you know more and more I still am encountering lots and lots of artists and labels that have never ever gone and claimed sound exchange And I think um, if you have not registered with SoundExchange as an artist, do so before we're off this Zoom call. Pull up another window and- Hey Randall, just
1: really quickly, just for those who don't know about SoundExchange, can you talk just a little bit about non-interactive streaming and what that's all about? Yeah, of course. So obviously if you have a track on
0: Spotify and, and that track gets a play, you're paid for that track's play. Um, we ran into in the, in the industry back in the early 2000s. We ran into an issue with web radio, where a track would get play, and there was no no one really knew how to monetize that, or really how to pay out on it. And so, Exchange was 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 established as a nonprofit that would go and collect from non-interactive streaming operations. And so, uh, really, kind of first and foremost on that list was Pandora. But it's, of course, since expanded greatly. And, and basically, anywhere where music just happens, where you don't select the music, is, is, so is qualified. Like it's, it's not interactive. Yeah, absolutely. XM is a big piece of that. Um, it really, any anything that streams like that. Radio Disney is another big piece of that. And we've seen here locally, we've seen artists that all of a sudden get a lot of interest from SiriusXM look up and that sound exchange check comes in and they're like, holy crap, where did this come from? And, 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 and it's, it, I always have to go back in arrears and explain, okay, this is where that money came from. Don't expect it every time, but this is because of this spike that we saw in your in your digital radio play. Um, but so sound exchange is really, really important. You know, in, in, in a kind of, in the United States, we don't have any performance protection for sound recordings this is due to the old radio lobby and this is this goes back to really to the invention of radio when they said well radio is going to be a promo for the records so why would we pay when we're promoting them and this the same principle has continued and has held on in the really in the
1: us in the us yeah
0: for for now for more than 50 years and and so sound exchange was kind of a stopgap procedure to say, okay, that's fine, big radio, we get it. Your your terrestrial play, you don't wanna pay for it. That's fine. But what about that web stream you've got going on? And it was a way for us to go back in the back end and find a way to monetize. And so it is really, really, really imperative that you all get registered there. If you're a client of Symphonic, we can do the collection for you. If you're, it, absolutely can, you can do it yourself, if you have a big catalog, it's a major pain in the tail. There's a lot of data involved. If you if you're a client of ours, we can do it for you. But if you're not a client of ours, or if you are a client of ours, you know, it would behoove you to go take a look because that to me, and it and it's something that we've been kind of educating on for a long time, but sound exchange money is real money. And is. you can go back, especially if you're if, if Symphonic is doing it for you, we actually can go back and collect back pay for, from sound exchange for you. We can go back several years with of revenue for you. And so um, something definitely to consider on, on the master side. Um, you know, I think probably the most, the most important thing to consider on the master side. Every artist I meet is so worried about getting in the studio, cutting the perfect track, and a release strategy. But they're never worried about the back end follow up that comes and brings more revenue. Yeah, And so I really do think um, that's a good place to start. Um, other master monetization items, you know, in, in obviously include the traditional distribution lane, include traditional sync. Um, you know, of course, sync is a buyer's market and, and is tough. And so. Um,
1: yeah, I always like to tell people uh, a little bit about sync only because I, I noticed that even with some managers that I work with, they don't have a full picture. Uh, about sync, and yeah, it's synchronization, and people think of getting your music in, you know, a TV commercial or in a film, but it's also, you know, games. Uh, there's a lot of games that are putting music in there, and that's that's a sync license too. And there's no, you know, statutory rate, so it's all negotiated, and you can make some very good money with, you know, with sync.
0: Yeah, it's it's absolutely the wild wild west on rates. Um, there are norms, but there are no rules. Um, so you know you'll hear you'll hear of the errant ACDC sync that yields a million dollars for something that normally would be a two hundred thousand dollars sync. Um, the reality is, it just depends on how bad the client wants the music. But you're right in in all of those traditional media's from film, TV. Advertising, video games—those are the big ones. Um, there's also ancillary items and places you can you can earn in that in that lane as well. There's licensing into consumer goods. Um, you know, there's I when I was doing sync in in a former life. You know, I, at one point I licensed music into a hospital bed. No crap. Seriously, a license music into a hospital bed. It paid well. Um, you know, you could listen to Mozart when you're getting ready to get put under. Um, it was all it was a whole shtick they had. But you know, the other piece to look at on the sink front, and this is much more accessible for a lot of people, is microsync. And microsync is kind of is traditional syncs little brother and it's kind of it's an automated more automated system it's kind of a, it's for creators um you know content creators on youtube etc can go to these libraries and can go grab music and pay a nominal fee um they always used to lean back and say it was for, for wedding videographers is where it started and and it's become more about content play now yeah But in aggregate, MicroSync can pay really well, and uh, and I've seen people make impressive amounts of money there, and so I, you know, I'd urge you to look into that as well. Again, we're going to talk about a lot of things here that Symphonic does and can do for you. You know, I'm biased. I'm sitting in an office with a letterhead that says Symphonic in front of me, so I'm going to talk about us and what we do. Look around them you know look around there's many players out there um, but but we are certainly here to help on that front and all of that sync uh, items for us run through bodega they all run specifically through John Mizrahi and uh, and his team over there in bodega so the master is pretty simple and we've, we've kind of hit that really quickly here the publishing is where it gets really hairy and so um, you know as we're doing this revenue completeness check I think it's really in, really imperative that we look at the monetary we're doing on the publishing side of things. Are we registered with a PRO, it was question number one. If you're not, do it, you have to, you have to. Right. Somebody has to, you know, you have to or you've got to get an
1: admin. And when you say PRO, you're talking about ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, those types of performance rights organizations who will collect those performing, yeah. pre- performance rights revenue for you, right?
0: Or, or SOCAN in Canada or SASIM in France. Um, Each territory has its own respective PRO and um, it's really important that you, you know, I I preach a lot to to artists that they need to be a good steward of their own business. And I think that this is one of those cases where, you know, there's lots and lots of thick books that will tell you how to make it in the music industry. But there are in actuality, just a number of tasks that I think that if anybody takes upon themselves to do, you're going to see financial upside out. So once you're with a PRO, the next step of that whole situation would be, and this is something after you're actually making some money, would be looking into publishing administration or a publishing deal, as it were. I'm in Nashville, which is publishing, publishing central for the United States. And so everybody here is looking for a publishing deal. Um, I think it's important to note. The, they don't have to be a full publishing deal. You don't have to sell your whole catalog. You don't have to sell your life to a publishing company. You can you can shave off percentages. You can sell pieces of back catalog. You can do a fifty-fifty deal, which we call a co-publishing deal, where you really you gain the strength of the publisher, but at the same time you uh, you're you're in a partnership of sorts. Um, and I'm actually a really big fan of the co-publishing deal. Jay, have you have you done much in that lane? With
1: no, all- I mean this is kind of where you grew up in the industry, right? I mean, I would love, I've been reading a lot lately about neighboring rights, for example. And I'd love for you to just kind of touch on that because there's so many areas of publishing, you know, people are inherently afraid of what they don't understand. But as you demystify these things, it's not so scary, but can you touch on neighboring rights a little bit?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Neighboring rights do apply to, to publishing, but more so the, the, they're more interesting on, on the master side. I'll be quite honest. And it's very similar to what, what we talked about with sound exchange um, at the, you know, five minutes ago. Um, sound exchange really it covers, it's for the U S covers the U S neighboring rights are for public performance of sound recordings and, and, and worldwide. And so, you know, we have a lot of clients that are looking to get into neighboring rights collection. Neighboring rights works really well if you're getting airplay, if you have sinks and your music is on TV, if, there is, if there's secondary performances happening of your music in those lanes, neighboring rights is something that, that is absolutely worth looking into. Yet again, something we can do for you, but we have to be very careful about it because like so many other lanes, it's a little bit like registering all of the th- all of the songs you wrote with a PRO. It doesn't really make sense to register a song that you wrote unless it's commercially earning. Registering it with a performance royalty organization is not the same as copywriting it. And so, you know, if you register a bunch of un- non-earning songs with your PRO, once they begin earning, you're going to end up with data conflict and dual registrations that will mess you up. Um, so we we look at the uh, neighboring rights in the same way, where what we want to do is, you know, if you've got catalog that's getting airplay, especially throughout throughout all of the European territory, especially, it's got, yes, absolutely, go and, and set up the neighboring rights. We are in a partnership with a company called PRO Agency, um, who's a phenomenal, phenomenal partner um, and, and based in Europe and, and does great work. And in the neighboring rights space, and so that's awesome. that's a, a great a great item to bring up. Um, you know, neighboring rights do come into play with publishing, but I don't think it carries as big of a stick with publishing as it does with yeah, master uh, side. Yeah. with with the master side. So, um, so okay, so getting those ducks in a row are important. Obviously, getting your own business ducks in a row are important. You know, I think you know I my tip to all the artists last fall, early in the fall, was. Take this time, look at your brand. Look at your marketing. What are you doing with your marketing? You know, is, is your branding the same across every social platform you're on? Yeah. Okay. So th- there are little details like that that really, really matter. And I think now's a great time to kind of tiptoe into the marketing side of things and, and talk about that, I think, because, um, you know, this is where business and marketing kind of line up.
1: Yeah, I think that's super important. And I, and I tell people that every day as well there are certain things that you can control. Clearly, you can control the look and feel of your socials, your banners, and your artist image. And now, you know, on a lot of the DSPs, you can control a lot, right? Spotify more than the others. You can put like 140 photos in there, your bio, your social links, your images. But even on now, you know, Apple Music, Amazon Music, you're now able to kind of control that same artist image. So it's consistent across the board. And I think it makes a big difference. There's nothing worse than seeing an artist's socials or DS on a DSP and seeing an old image with maybe a member of the band that's not in the band anymore or something that's just dated. So I think that's a key point.
0: Absolutely. So I, I apologize. I was moving too fast. We had a couple of questions. I'm going to back up really quick. And- oh, cool. So, um, gosh, my eyes with the sun. So we have Christian Hoffman asks, uh, is SoundExchange the U.S. version of PRS? Um, PRS for music is, is, is the U.K. version of a mechanical collection society, I do, Christian, I do believe, I'm not an expert on PRS at all, so I this may be slightly flawed. I do believe that they do work along the same lines of sound exchange, though PRS is much better recognized, at least in my head, as a mechanical collection society, as well as uh, one of the interesting things PRS did was they did level the playing field on sync um, payouts in the UK and television shows and, and things like that in, in the UK, productions that are there are on a rate card um, that's established by PRS. So they're very similar, though there are some key differences there. We have two more quick questions and then we'll keep going. Justin Butler um, asked quickly, um, can, can you, I assume um, Symphonic is the question, I, the royal you, uh, collect for a label's entire catalog on sound exchange? The answer to that is absolutely yes. Um, if, if you own the catalog and want to do the data wrangling, you can do it yourself. We are also equipped to do this for you um, very easily. So um, after this is all said and done, I'll share my contact information with anybody who wants it. And any questions like that can specifically come into me. I'd be glad to help. Um, Bree, Bria or Brie Miles um, asked about what company do we su- suggest for Sync? That is Bodega Sync. B O D E G A S Y N C dot com. Um, go check it out. It, it is, uh, we've launched that about two years ago. We've had some really, really cool success there. Um, most recently, I got something in the blacklist a week ago. We've got a bunch of Netflix shows featuring our music. Um, and and, and uh, we just, I think we licensed six or seven tracks into a big T Mobile promotion that was going kind of around the Super Bowl Um, and and this is all independent music these aren't name brand folks these are these are people who are just out there you know busting their butts. Hey Randall what do
1: they provide to you besides maybe instrumental versions or you know the the masters is there anything people need to supply to you Uh, pitch deck blurbs images anything else?
0: So, so, at a bare minimum, um, and this is good, this goes for anyone going after sync. I don't. It doesn't matter if you're working with Bodega and Symphonic or anybody else. You need to have your full version of whatever your track is. You need to have an instrumental version of whatever your track is. Perfect case scenario. You need to have stems available for every track you have.
1: Do you need um, a clean version?
0: Absolutely. And and it, you know if 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 you if you have adult language in your in, in your in your tune. It, will, it can severely limit the use of your song and, uh, and you know, going back many, many years, there, we all remember the Black Eyed Peas anthem, let's get it started. Let's get it started. Everybody knew let's get it started. Well I actually was a club DJ when that originally came out, when Ella Funk came out about a year and a half before Let's Get It Started, the single mm-hmm. went out. Do you remember that, Jay? Yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember the what? What the actual? No. Title? What
1: was the line?
0: It was "Let's get retarded," ah, which, of course, right. is is is, is an awful world word that I don't like to use in in, in my daily discourse. Um, but they found that that song didn't perform with that title. They changed that bit of it, and all of a sudden, explosive growth for the for them. And this is before the Black Eyed Peas were big. This was yeah. this was really kind of you know on the on the trajectory for them, and so it's always good, always good to have you know to have a clean version, and also to look at your lyrics through a, through a lens of is this divisive, is this is this content going to drive people away from me or bring people to me? Um, look, I don't want to get in the way of anybody's creative arc, and I think that everybody puts words in places for specific reasons, um, but my job is to find the place where art and commerce meet and help the art succeed at commerce. And so that's my, my recommendation for that. Um, okay, so we jump backwards. We're gonna go back forwards <laughs> to marketing again and, and, and dive a little deeper. So we had talked about brand and brand consist- consistency across all platforms.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, let's talk about those platforms.
1: Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about that consistency. Um, I'm a professional photographer. And it's really important to me that when you see an image that you can hear the music, that it speaks to that brand that you talked about. And it's surprising sometimes how there's a disconnect between the imagery and the actual brand and the sound. So I think that's one important thing to kind of bring up. And then to your point, talking about the platforms, I I look at them, I kind of separate them from, you know, commerce and then socials, you know, so Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, You know, et cetera, all of those places you control so much about how you're perceived, whether it's your bio, whether it's your images, you know, all of those things. And then on the commerce side, you know, like we mentioned a second ago uh, with uh, Spotify for artists, Apple Music for artists, uh, Amazon Music for artists, but also, you know, Pandora AMP. Um, And then I like to kind of dig a little bit deeper, and we can talk about this a little bit more in a bit, but with some of the other platforms that are out there, you know, that help the industry, whether it's Jaxta, whether it's, you know, chart metrics, sound charts, you know, um, Viberate. I want to make sure that that branding is consistent across all of uh, those platforms as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hey, can you talk a little bit about Jaxta? I, I know they're pretty new on the scene and I know, I, I know the role they play, but I imagine the people here in the room don't, aren't, aren't fully up to scale on that. Um, you know. I, I've never done any business work with them. I've just followed them as a, as a fanboy for a little while here.
1: Yeah, I, I haven't done any business with them, but I reached out to them uh, about the podcast and we had some conversations and I met up with them at Music Biz. And, and I just love it because I'm really big on metadata and we, we could talk for hours just about metadata and how it's delivered. You know, this is uh, the artist name, the version, the tracks, you know, the publishing splits and all of that, and it's delivered so differently fra- depending on who's delivering it to let's say the DSPs. And I'm I'm really hopeful that we get to a point where that data is delivered and there's enough fields to credit all of the people that were involved, whether you're a sideman, engineer, whatever it is. If you're involved in in those recordings I think that's key. And what I love about JAXTA is that's providing this place where you can see who's involved with all of these different projects in many different ways, but you can also claim your page. Or if you're an artist manager or someone like me that works with multiple artists, you can claim these pages and help them get the data correct. Um, There are some times where you have a band name that sounds like another band name and sometimes they get cross-pollinated. Um, so there, there are ways that you can just make sure that all of that data is correct and you can also use that as a tool depending on if you're an ANR person, if you're going to uh, find information on people. I want it to get to the point where if you're on a DSP, for example, that if I want to look and see um, what records has Chris, Chris Lord Alge worked on that I, I'll be able to search on that? Which songs has Brett James written for other people? You know, there's a, what, you know, what albums has Christian McBride played bass on? Um, we have all of this at our fingertips. We're just not quite there yet. And I think Jax is really taking a lead when it comes to metadata. Really kind of like an IMDb for music, music right? Yeah. Very cool. Well, yeah,
0: and I don't currently work with this so, so, so you should check that out on your own. But I, I have been a big fan of everything they have been doing. Um, you mentioned Chartmetric, which is one of my favorite tools in, yeah. in the music business. And one of the things that I have to say kind of on repeat to people that pains me most is that we're at a time and place musically and in this industry where the data about the music is almost more important than the music itself. Mm. Um, the data about the artist, the artist's level of following on multiple platforms, fan engagement, um, all of these things come into play in A&R discussions. It's no longer yeah. about just discovering that raw talent on the stage with a guitar and yeah. um, developing it. Um, what role does that play for you, Jay? As you're looking at new clients and you're looking to help develop your clients, I know that's a big piece of your strategy.
1: It is, we, we look at data really deeply, but um, there's an old saying that uh, data is like a lamppost. You can use it to illuminate or you can use it to lean on. And I think a lot of people use data to prop up things that they already believe. We like to look a little deeper in the data to see, you know, how do we make this actionable? What does this data actually mean? We were in a meeting one time and somebody was saying, oh, well, this record's up 12% this week. Well, the overall market was up 18% and they neglected to mention that. So it's actually maybe underperforming. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about chart metric, which is one of the best tools in the business, I worked with them around the first year or so that they started out. Um, I, I love what Sung Cho and his team are building over there. You can look at all the different socials and look at trends and what, playlists you've been added to and taken off of, and what position you're in. And I think that's important. I think you do need to know what's going on with the trends and with your music. There are other competitors that do things a little differently. Soundcharts is, is another one of those really great platforms. There's a new one out of Slovenia called Viberate that I really like because they show engagement. And these days, without going off the rails here, you need real engagement. And when I see a lot of likes or follows in a short period of time, I want to go and see what's happening. Are people consuming the music? Are they actively um, making comments, sharing things? Are there video views? What's going on on the backside? Because as you probably read recently, last few weeks, uh, hundreds of thousands of tracks were pulled down from Spotify because they were saying that they were, you know using bots and spin farms and things like that well that's really easy to see in one of these platforms especially when you can see okay you've got an increase in audience what's going on with your engagement so the last thing i'll say on this is that you don't have to pay for a service although i recommend that you do but you get so much free information spotify for artists apple music for artists amazon music for youtube pandora amp there's so many areas where you can go in there for free and really see how you're performing. And I still think, even though it's kind of like the cockpit of a jet, I still like going into Facebook insights and you know looking at Instagram insights and, and looking at that data too and seeing how things are performing. Because I, I say this a lot, it sounds pedantic, but you want to look at what's working, do more of that, look at what's not working and do less of that. That's uh, poetic. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think the data insights are really important. And I think that, you know, most artists want to grow in an earnest, honest way. Um, you know, I, I am uh, outspokenly against bots. Yes, uh, you are. You know, Symphonic does not support any botting of any kind. Um, and we get reports and, and the DSPs know. They know if you're cheating, don't cheat. Like they they, they know. And the thing about it is if, if they suspect you of getting it or having bad streams, they just don't pay you. There is no um, appeals process. So, like, if it looks squirrely, if all of a sudden, if all of a sudden, one hundred percent of your streams are coming from Buffalo, New York,
1: you oh, know, free because tier. it's
0: coming through an IP redirect. Yeah. Like, people know there's always smarter people out. There. Yeah. who can figure this out and so look at you know as you're as you're hiring marketing companies and people to help you with with your your brand and what you 're doing um be careful about promises that are too good to be true you know yeah. I, I would only add one to thing too-
1: to that Randall and yeah. that is that you, you have to be careful who your partners are that you hire because I had an artist have their music taken down from Spotify. They had hired a PR firm and they didn't know that the PR firm was actually hiring this white label playlist promotion company. So make sure you ask the right questions to your partners that they're not using some of these tactics as well.
0: Yeah, I would, I would bet it's almost never the artist themselves who's doing this. It's always a team member who just thinks they're helping. Yeah. You know, thinks they're pushing the ball a little bit further up the hill by doing this. But in, in all actuality, it's doing a lot more harm than it is good.
1: Yeah, and I have so- some old, older, um, experienced managers that will come to me because they're used to radio promotion and they equate playlists with radio, which is not accurate. And they'll say, well, we need to hire a, like a radio promotion person. We need to hire that person for playlists. Here's the budget for it. This is what we need. Um, and we just say timeout. You know, a playlist is not a marketing plan, right? Absolutely. So um, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to keep
0: track of things and keep an eye on the clock here. As we talk about marketing, let's talk about um, let's talk about the big, enormous elephant in the corner of the room. His name is TikTok. Um, listen, I can't guarantee y'all much of anything, but I guarantee you, if you have a track take off on TikTok, it's probably going to take off on Spotify. Um, there are direct correlations being drawn all the way across this industry um, that have led many people to go into you know speculative investment into TikTok, trying to trying to you know buy influencers to to do things there. Um, you know we you know we are real big fans of organic growth. I believe that every artist ought to have a TikTok. Account. I think I think you have to be investing yourself into the platform. I think that um, you know we as a service deliver to TikTok on behalf of our distribution clients. We also as a service can collect on user uploaded items that are belonging to those clients. That um, it's a manual claims process. But if you have somebody that rips a track of yours off of YouTube, drops it into a TikTok video, and it goes bonkers, we can collect. Um, on behalf of you in that lane, even if it's something we didn't deliver. And this has been something we've really had to run down. It's been a, a skill set we've had to develop over the last year or so. Um, we as a company are early adopters. We, we show up at technology when technology begins. Um, it, uh, actually, it has a lot to do with our DNA and with our founder, who's very tech focused that way. And so um, Jorge is wired that way. And this place is is Jorge's place. And so we inherently are wired that way. So we were at Triller before I got to the company. We were at Triller before I'd ever heard of Triller. And I came to the company on April 1st, 2019. Um, You know, we, we were at TikTok. We were one of the very first distributors at TikTok, delivering and monetizing at the channel. um and we really we're proud of it we're excited to be there really um you
1: know yeah i'd love to get your thoughts on the audience there because the misconception that i hear pretty regularly is that well we we don't necessarily need to be at tiktok or roblox or some of these things because really that's a younger crowd and you know we're we're a little bit older more mature but the more i dig into tiktok it's it's across the board. I mean, look at the success of, you know, that Fleetwood Mac uh, clip, things like that. It's catalog, it's classic, it's heritage, it's adult, it's everything from jazz, you know, EDM country. I mean, I don't think you can just say it's a bunch of 16 year olds doing dance videos.
0: It's definitely not. And I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really cool. I love the democratization of music. Like like we've seen this happen over the last 15, 20 years, where all of a sudden the audience is kind of calling the shots uh, a lot more than when when it was left to gatekeepers. Yeah. And and you look at you look at the Fleetwood Mac thing, but you look at catalog at TikTok. Catalog does hugely well. Especially, you know, you know, my Maya Culpa, my wife is a TikTok addict. And uh, <laughs> and I don't play with no it very job, much. Man. It's kind of work for me. Like I can't I can't look at TikTok and not think about the business side of it. So sure. I try to hang that up when I go home. But what are you doing over there? It should be nothing. Sure. <laughs> Looking at TikTok, but the songs and the people she's following on TikTok aren't aren't necessarily all Cardi B. They aren't the newest hottest thing. A lot of them are evergreens from a publishing standpoint. And and it, I think TikTok is an incredible way to breathe life into an old catalog.
1: Yeah. You
0: know, and, and the reality is, you you capture that zeitgeist moment with that piece of music where you have a four minute song and you capture thirty seconds of that song that gets the mood. This you know that this you know chef is trying to convey as they're you know chopping onions in a very stylized video. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's pretty ingenious, and I yeah. think. It's a, great, it's a great leverage tool to market existing catalog and to try to breathe life into existing catalog.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that we tell all of our artists that they need to have a presence on TikTok. It's also one of the easiest ways to build an audience a little more quickly than Instagram or other platforms. You'd be surprised at how fast you can grab some followers there. And uh, look around at some of your favorite artists and see what they're doing on the platform. There's so many creative things that people are doing with those little 15-second clips.
0: Well, and, uh, like the duets feature to me is incredible. And we, we have seen incredible things happen with independent artists who have a, a great song that catches on there. And the next thing you notice, Charlie Puth is duetting with them yes. for fun. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's it, there's a couple of things that you get in that you get a tacit endorsement from that major artist that you matter and that your music matters and it's important. You get the fan base of that major artist coming over and becoming in a, in essence, an affinity fan base for you because they like them. They're going to like you because they're, they're they've got now a direct connection to you. It's really, really brilliant. And I think, you know, I wouldn't overthink it as an artist on TikTok. I would, I'd load my music, I'd do dances to Cardi B songs and I'd sing right into the mic (laughs) and see what happens. More than anything with social media, consistency is the most important thing you can do. I pay to see that,
1: Randall. What, sorry? I pay to see you do that.
0: Oh, well, you know, (laughs) everybody has a price.
1: But Jay, wouldn't you agree, consistency above all else? Yeah, and I think a lot of these platforms, that's the key word, consistency. It's not just TikTok. You know, YouTube is another great example. You know, you want to be consistent, you know, whether you're posting every week, you know, make sure it's the same time every week, make sure your fans know that that's when new things are going to happen and diversify. I think a lot of folks are looking for that silver bullet, but in our minds, the silver bullet is really optimization. Right? And making sure that all, you're involved with these. Don't be afraid of TikTok. Go in there and explore. See what other people are doing. See what speaks to your brand. There's an old saying you want to go to where the party is, don't start your own party. And there's a party over there at TikTok, and I think you need to be there. Absolutely. So let's, we're almost out of time, and I definitely, uh, there's some
0: questions. I know we could go for hours. We really could. Um, we should do this in, as a series. Um, yeah. We can definitely um, I've got some questions I want to go, go over but I, I think really importantly um, on the marketing front, let's talk about your yours in my opinion of the surfaces that matter um, the places where as an artist you are you are you know bankrupt if you are not there um, in, yes. in, in, in social media and in fan interaction for me the number one platform is, is Instagram. It's a tie right now because TikTok's come up. Yeah. But I really think Instagram and TikTok are huge for, for artist engagement.
1: Yeah, I, I'm really big on those. I'm also still really big on YouTube, but not as just a place to dump your videos. I think if you have a strategy through your release cycle and you're releasing multiple videos, and I'm not talking about expensive concept videos, I'm talking about a lyric video, a pseudo video. A pseudo video is just the you know, artwork with an audio bed. Um, Maybe it's just a a little teaser video. What's happened with video is it's gotten smaller and smaller bite-sized chunks. You know, you have those eight-second canvas loops. You've got 15-second TikTok videos. You've got really quick little bites on socials. But I think a good YouTube strategy Uh, is really really important to consistently post there engage there they have tools that you know we can talk about maybe on our next episode but there are there are a lot of tools that you can use there it's a very powerful platform but I find that too often people just dump a video there and then throw the link in other places and that's that's not the right well, it, it,
0: since you mentioned YouTube, you know, on that front, you need to be collecting. You need to be collecting royalties from YouTube, um, especially for content ID. Um, content ID, can, if you've got material that's popular and being shared, it can be a massive, massive cash of money. Um, I guess pun intended um, for you there. So, you know, we, we on behalf of our clients collect it. YouTube for content ID, we can also collect publishing royalties directly from YouTube and platform. Um, So if you have channels that are taking off, it's something that's really, really imperative that you you kind of lock into because YouTube, you know, in many territories, YouTube is the number one place people are consuming music. It is the, it's the, by far, what was the statistical thing I used to hear? It's the number one search engine for music in the world. Um, or consumption place for music in the world. And it's the number two search engine in the world, more so than Yahoo. Think about that for a second. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's Google, and, and, then, and then for some reason, YouTube is where people go to search for things. Yeah. Um, and so anything you have on there can be monetized. You know, if you don't have an official artist channel, that would be goal number one. Get your official artist channel set so that you can start monetizing that and that's another item we can do for you see we are full service Uh, (laughs) i don't want this to be an infomercial but um but you know it's kind of the point um so we have some questions we've got about a little more than 10 minutes left and so i have some questions that were actually sent in and i wanted to kind of read through some of those and answer them, and Jay, jump in on these where you can. And sure. we can have real live questions where you can actually unmute yourself and speak if you'd like to, if we can do it in an orderly fashion. But to start out, um, so so Cedric Perry asked, what are suggestions um, that would make yourself a good candidate for Bodega Sync to rep you in the sync space? Um, the same things that make you a great candidate for playlisting or for getting booked into a club make you a great candidate for sync. Um, it always boils back to an engaged audience, to great music, to, to, to a great deal of synergy between all of your marketing and your the, and the musical output and, and, and put in growth potential. The reality is in sync, the um, music supervisors are checking the same statistics a is checking. Um, they're looking to see what kind of following you have. You know, if we put this song in this show, how many people might come watch the show because of the songs in it? Because they tell their friends. That's a real decision that goes on. It's it's like a real estate transaction, okay? Um, they give you the, the promotional prowess of the sink. What do you give them other than the music? Um, you know, in some cases, if it's Imagine Dragons, they're bringing a wealth there. Everybody's coming with them. You know, on the independent artist spectrum, you've got to show why, why you stand out. So um, very similar parameters to how we decide whether we can be a distributor for someone are 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 in place for whether we can be a sync rep for someone. Except I'd say it's a little bit. Well, it's probably a lot more competitive, honestly, because you know you want a rep who's going to know you, know your music, and be an advocate. And and at scale, that's really hard to do unless you have a hundred employees running sync, listening to all these songs. Um, so Gary B had a question: um, Does it cost money to register for
1: SoundScan? You want to take that, Jay? No, it, it, well, <laughs> it doesn't cost money to register for SoundScan. Now, SoundScan became Nielsen Connect, which became MRC, but it's all the artists formerly known as SoundScan, right? It's you know how we track our our sales streams and downloads, and as you know, Randall, you know if you're going through a distributor, that that's going to happen naturally through that process.
0: Yeah. And sound scans, basically just taking the temperature on, on the success of your record. Um, this is a great question. And I actually, I want to, I'm going to defer to you, Jay, and I want to see if your answer lines up with mine, but Tyler Johnson asks, he says, so you have great branding, publicists and radio people, distribution, everything is lined up at this point where, if you have all that going on, where should you put your marketing money towards, um,
1: where, where, where does that go? Did, did he have um or he or she did they have a publicist on there? Publicist was there. Yeah, um, I think a lot of the basic blocking and and tackling is there. I think that when you're going from zero to sixty these days, I think audience growth is the most challenging part. And there's lots of great tools out there, you know, Tone in and Foundy, and there's all sorts of great ways to kind of. Uh, reach an audience and grow an audience. One of the things that we really love right now is you know these 15 second Instagram stories ads that drive people to a destination like YouTube or Spotify or someplace. Um, I think that whether you're doing your own socials or hiring somebody to do your socials, I think that's key because, just because you know how to post to socials a professional will know how to create a plan, a content calendar, create great assets, you know, look at the data. So there's there's always kind of that deeper step you can take on all of these things. Awesome. So
0: I have a similar answer to that, but I would I'd go one step further. I think that dollars to dimes, I think if you have everything, all your basic blocking and tackling done, and you've got money burning a hole in your pocket and you're trying to figure out how to, how, how to best deploy that money. I think there's no better spin than digital advertising. I think you can run targeted ad campaigns. Um, we can do this on behalf of our clients. There are a million great, great companies out there that do this as well. Um, but for uh, our, good for our in-house clients, building that, that model of what your target is, you know, you know, we want, you know, we want people who listen to John Mayer and who are in their late 20s, early 30s, you know, that live in the Midwest. You can you can really dial down the demographics yeah. and target that key audience and, and hit them with your content and with a call to action that brings them over to your Spotify to listen, brings them to your YouTube to subscribe. Um, I think that that is the very and even if it's just a few hundred dollars deployed a month, yeah. I think it's the but very best use of money. Um, especially for, for a DIY artist. I think you can really move mountains with
1: that. Yeah. The um, only thing I would just quickly add to that, Randall, is I, I agree with all of that. Um, iHeart uh, Radio is also offering some really great ways to kind of get down to a specific audience. And one little tool that people often miss that's really powerful is is bands in town. If you Let's say you have 20,000 trackers. You can send them messages for free. Let's say you want to reach another audience. Let's say that you know that the chain smokers audience would love your band. For five cents an email, you can reach them. So for very little money or for no money, it's another one of those great tools that you can use.
0: Absolutely. Um, And so that leads us to the next question. One of the calls to action you can do in a digital advertising campaign is called a follow campaign. And it's it's to get people to follow your Spotify profile. Um, the follower is the stickiest engagement you can find, um, I think, in any digital marketing because people don't unfollow. Unless unless you do something that just irks me, I'm not going to take the time to log in, go to your profile and unfollow. That's you. right. It, it's it is almost permanent. So this leads to this next question from Chad Jackson, who says, Spotify playlists are notoriously hard to get on. Truth. I was able to get on release radar a few times and my streams benefited. I was wondering if there's a way to repeat that success. So release radar is targeted to your followers. Release radar is directly correlated to your followers. Yeah. Jay, do you do you do you have any other insights? Yeah, there? well,
1: three of them Discover Weekly, Release Radar, and Radio are all drawing from those followers, right? So you want to make sure that those that you grow that number. It's it's super important because we watch that data every week. And I would say a majority of the plays, especially for developing artists, are coming from those three sources when you're talking about Spotify. But you have to be careful, you want real followers. There's a big trend now with the pre-save, pre-ad, pre-order. And I always tell clients, don't do a big like guitar giveaway thing to get people to pre-save because that's going to hurt you. You want real people who are actually, when it's dropped into their release radar or dropped into their library for pre-save, you want people who are actually going to listen to it. That's going to help you. Just having a bunch of people sign up to, to win something free isn't going to help you. But I'm, I, I agree 100%. And I think driving ads especially like those Instagram stories ads that we talked about. If you have a compelling couple of seconds of video at the front when people are swiping through that, you can drive people to follow you. And that that, as well as kind of the YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. I think those are two really powerful things.
0: Awesome. Let's talk about Bandcamp. Justin Butler is asking about Bandcamp strategies to use that Bandcamp followership to monetize on other platforms. Jay, do you have, what's your experience with that?
1: I, I don't really go too deep into Bandcamp. I do have a couple of clients that, are, that swear by it and, and are deep into it, but I'm not really well-versed in it. I don't use it every day.
0: Okay. And I, I, I admittedly also am not I'm super deep onto Bandcamp. I do believe in, in, in the reality of the digital footprint and making sure that your ancillary services are always tagged in whatever surface you're on. Um, so, you know, I do believe that there are ways to translate those followers. I will say that Symphonic does have a partnership with Bandcamp and we do deliver to Bandcamp on behalf of our clients. Um, you know, there's no money made there at all on our side. Um, but, but we are able to deliver there. Um, and it's, it is probably notable and you probably know this many of you, but on the first Friday of every month, hundred percent of those purchases at Bandcamp go right into your pocket. So if I was doing anything with Bandcamp, I'd be pushing people there for the first Friday and (laughs) elsewhere for every other day of the month um, to the best of my ability.
1: Yeah. And again, Um, it's like go to where the party is, right? They've got a pretty good uh, amount of people that go there to discover music and to congregate. So it's important to be there.
0: Absolutely. Um, This is, gosh. And you guys are asking great questions here. This is this is going to take a minute to unpack, and we may not have time to unpack it fully. But uh, Pete Roderick has asked, uh, moving, this is, sorry, I need to read this. This isn't just a quick question. Moving music streaming towards a user-centric payout model puts an emphasis on the fan-artist connection. Do we think collective playlisting and a platform like Feature.fm support this initiative more directly?
1: Well, let's talk about user centric for a second, just so people understand. If I listen to the accidentals my entire month uh, on Apple Music or Amazon Music, the accidentals don't get my or the rights holder, I should say, maybe their label. They're not getting my 999. Right. And a lot of people want to move to that user centric um model and there's a lot of discussion we we won't drag down this discussion but just know that it's being discussed right now in the uk in parliament there's a lot of discussion going on about how we can make this whole ecosystem more fair um I, i love feature fm i think it's a great team over there we've had them on the podcast i use feature fm um i think that We're going to be evolving We're, you know, this whole thing has been around like a week and a half. We're all just learning, you know, in this new music business, anybody who tells you they got it figured out, it's changed while we've been having this discussion. So I guess I would say to that, I love the the model. I just think it's going to take a lot to get there.
0: Agreed. Um, we got time for one more question. And I, I love this question. And so I'm going to answer it here with your help, Jay. Dan Conley asks, what is the best content release strategy? Release singles over time, release an EP, or release a full album at once. And I know, I already know what you're going to say. So I'm going to let you say it and then I'll jump on.
1: Um, look, I, I, there's, I always say there's no silver bullet. Right. And there are a lot of great ways uh, to release music, but it's an always on music business. Let's start there. You don't, this, it's not like an 18 month release cycle where you release something and then next year you put out something else. People have short attention spans. I think that you want to continually engage your audience with releasing music, releasing videos, um, you know, posting to social, just engaging and really communicating and hearing and responding to your audience. And I think there's no better way to do that than release music. I will tell you that one release cycle that worked really well for us was the band Vintage Trouble. Instead of dropping an album, we dropped an EP. Then we dropped another EP with those exact same five songs reimagined, not just acoustic, but like maybe a reggae version of one and a stripped down version of one, but the same songs. Then that was put together as an album, like on vinyl. We repeated that with the next EP. It was the EP then five live versions and then another, and we dropped focus tracks in between with a release cadence that for a year kept new music coming, gave them something to talk about on socials, gave them something new to play live in a non COVID world. So I would say the short answer I think is get creative. There's no one answer. Um, some, like when you're talking about jazz, that wouldn't really work that well in jazz. Jazz is more of an album art form. And I think you need to release that album. It's not really a track based medium, a lot of it. So that would be my advice.
0: Awesome. And just piggybacking on that. My advice is this vast majority of the artists I work with are in the rock, alt rock country pop lane um you know a little rap here and there i'm you know i'm 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 genre agnostic here um i love music man. i love good music popular music music that falls into that into that popular space tends to perform really well on a track by track release basis and there's reasoning behind that and the reasoning that i tend to lean on is that you can only market one track at a time to the dsps you can only pick one focus track So if you have an album full of 10 incredible songs and you decide I'm going to drop this album, there's a couple of questions you have to ask yourself. One question is, you know, is is the album itself a standalone piece of art that cannot be severed? Is it a a dark side of the moon situation? If the answer to that is yes, and you have a fan base who's engaged enough to go listen to 65 minutes of music in one fell swoop, then dropping an album makes a lot of sense. If it's not the case, which most of the time is not the case, people don't have the attention span to listen to more than a few tracks at a time, Mm -hmm. my recommendation is always a single-based release strategy that goes at four- to six-week intervals, build up to the release, release it. Now, what we see on chart metric is from the date of release, if there's good marketing, in a perfect world, those monthly listeners are going to go like this. They're going to go on a nice little hockey stick up. I said that for you, Allie, Um, (laughs) my my Canadian in the room. Um, And that hockey stick is going to go up for about four weeks. And then it's going to start to plateau. And then it's going to decay. And the, the goal and the dream scenario is to catch that hockey stick before it decays. Catch it on the plateau. It's fine. You just don't want to catch it when it's decaying. Because the goal is to get the monthly listener count up. Because if you, I'm telling you, there's some next level technology out there and I can look at monthly listener counts and, you know, back of the napkin math, if it's, if it's steady, I can tell you how much money you're going to make next year off, off of Spotify. That is, that is one of those things that is really a great thing to keep an eye on it, it, for our commercial health as a musician. Now Spotify is not the only platform and and, and there are cases where things are exploding on YouTube and not really huge on Spotify and those anomalies exist. But for all intents and purposes, when we talk streaming music, we talk about Spotify. Spotify to me is like Kleenexes with tissues. It's just the name that I use for the whole big piece. Um, But rolling out a single release strategy, and then what I always tell people to do, and I have some staffers on here, if you've heard me say this a million times, is, you know, roll out, if you you have a five-song EP, roll out three singles. One of those songs is a throwaway. You've got a fourth single focus track on the EP, and you can button it all up at the end of the EP. Then wash, rinse, repeat. Do it over and over and over. Um, You know, content is king. And and the most important thing you can do is be releasing content, be engaging your audience, be getting in people's face and explaining to them why you matter, why your music matters. Get your marketing drivers together. Put a chip on your shoulder. Imagine you get cornered and somebody says, you got 30 seconds to explain to me why you're more important than 40,000 other songs next Friday. That's right. Because that's what our marketing team has to do. That's what we, as your advocates. That's what Jay, for his clients, is their advocates. That's what your artist manager is doing. That's what your booking agent is doing. You know, venues don't care. All venues care about is ticket sales. They don't care how good the music is. You know, you have to look at this with that business acumen. And I think if you do, if you look at it through that lens, I think there's great, great things you can do in 2021. And um, and with that, friends. We are like over time, and I could keep going for another five hours with my friend Jay here. Thank you, but brother. please thank you. join me in thanking Jay for his participation here. Thank you all for being here and for your participation. Justin Butler, thank you for your beard, because I thought I was the only beardo in the room, and I'm thrilled to see somebody else here with a good beard. Um, Jay has one of the most incredible podcasts, and if I'm going to brag on him for a thank second. You brother. it. it. It's called My Morning Coffee. Your Morning Coffee. Every Friday morning. Say it again. It's your Morning Coffee. Well, it it is My Morning Coffee. Every (laughs) Friday, your Morning Coffee. Subscribe to it. It's incredible. Um, He talks about every Friday there's new subject matter. It's all really, really next level good stuff. Obviously, you're here because you know the brand Symphonic. Symphonic blog is, I think, Dollars to Donuts, one of the very, very best blogs out uh, there. Absolutely. musician. Um, I've seen other distributors quote it on their blogs. And that was when I was like, okay, we're onto something pretty cool here. So, Symphonic Blog is something great. Make contact with us, guys. We're here to be your advocate. I'm at Randall Foster on Instagram and most socials. Um, you know, follow me. Let's be friends. Let's hang out. Um, let's make music together. And thank you all so much for being here today.